That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. How are you doing, Ben? Uh, good. I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, yeah. yeah, good to speak to you, Tom. Uh, obviously, just been watching the news over the weekend in complete horror. Or not not watching the news, in fact, but looking at uh, reports on Twitter. Yeah, it's uh, it, it took me back to February 2022, the shock of uh, seeing what Russia did so suddenly, uh, crossing the borders into um, Ukraine. I think we didn't really believe it, obviously. This is um, just the surprise element. Friday suddenly turns into a very different day to what you expect, and the news cycle becomes very different to what you expect. And uh, uh, so much of it is it, it's impossible to watch. It's far too difficult to watch. It's, it's hideous, the news at the moment. But it is a bit of a continuation as well of some of what we talked about last week. We talked about the shutting down of GB News. We talked about the shutting down of Russia Today. Um, and this whole idea of uh, how the broadcast media is presenting um, the in, the inv- effect of the invasion of, of Israel by terrorists, um, and um, the fact that what's, what what people are saying at the moment is that the BBC are refusing or seem to be refusing to refer to Hamas as terrorists, even though that is they are prescribed a prescribed terrorist organisation. And I believe both Labour leaders and Conservative leaders have described Hamas as such. In fact, David Lammy says, I'm a lawyer. If I, if, I, if I remember correctly over the weekend, he said, I'm a lawyer and I call things what they are. And Hamas yeah. is a terrorist organisation. Um, but it continues that debate about what we said about the language used in the broadcast media, particularly the BBC, around this whole area and how very sanitised it is or how the language is subtly changed and how often that confuses and obfuscates the truth of what's going on on the ground. So uh, it's, it's, it's worrying, just that element, because it's not in GB News and Russia Today, they seem such relatively minor issues relative to what's happened over the last 48 hours. But the BBC is, has a huge role to play as our national broadcaster. So it is concerning. I think particularly before the full... Well, we don't yet have a full death toll. We're speaking on Monday morning, so sadly we don't have a full death toll or anything near it. Um, But before the scale of the death toll was clear, the BBC reporting particularly was, I think all weekend it's been slow, it's been sanitised, and it's insisted on using this word militant, Mm. wholly inappropriately and inaccurately to describe these terror attacks. Um, and and it's just felt like the Tet Offensive crossed with the Bataclan, crossed with 9-11 and so on in terms of the scale of what's happened, of course, relative to Israel's relatively small population. Um, so it's it's been absolutely awful. And now there are, uh, we, we've seen these scenes of demonstrations and protests and so on going on in capital cities across the West uh, welcoming 
essentially the attacks and what's mm. happened. Um, and it, uh, this is another point that, that, that just occurred to me and is, is something that's been going around on social media a lot over the weekend, um, is the, the double standard. I mean, if we look at the incredibly low bar for getting a non-crime hate incident, for instance, recorded against you or for getting in trouble for the police, um, if you say anything that doesn't fit someone's idea of their transgender identity or whatever, there's a very low threshold for hate crime of various types for the police to become involved. But then when you look at these scenes of people glorifying terrorism, to use the legal language, there seems to be a rather limp response, at least so far. Perhaps the facts will be different by the time you're listening to this later in the mm. week. But on Monday morning, it seems to me that there is a double standard. What also strikes me is that... Um, where does all, where does all this come from? We we every week we're talking about free speech issues, and we're de- as you say we're dealing with with employees and and people out there just living their lives who suddenly get caught by this very low standard, and uh, for using the wrong language or for not a, not subscribing to a certain philosophy when their employer has subscribed to that um, to that philosophy. And what what I feel we've done. That's a bigger conversation, but it feels as a society is we've got so caught up with talking about how to talk and talking about how not to talk, and that's yes. become the the sort of um, what, what we it, it's dominated the news. We saw it dominating the party conferences. It dominates our cultural discussion. Is talking about how to talk, and of course, if we spend all your if you spend all your time talking about how to talk and talking about how not to talk, you don't end up learning how to talk about issues of substance. And then something like Friday happens and comes out the blue and you're suddenly playing catch-up because you've got to be able to to, to comment on and debate an issue of real substance. And we've lost the tools because we've become obsessed with um, inward-looking conversations as a society, Um, which is why people say, oh, that China's laughing at the West. Uh, the West is it's so easy. It is so easy to mock the cultural conversation in the Anglosphere at the moment because it's self-obsessed and self-referential to an extreme degree. I think historians will look back a hundred years from now with some degree of astonishment and incredulity at the amount of energy, legal, intellectual, philosophical, political that's been invested in, for instance the trans debate or in the excesses of the Black Lives Matter movement or at a time when Pax Americana is crumbling is probably overstating it but is certainly in retreat and facing the greatest competition in a century mm. um, that when, when, when that world order is, is in retreat potentially crumbling entirely that we are spending our time speaking about such nonsense. Um, and, you know, I often, I often think this when, we're, when we win a case, for instance, and, and luckily in the last few months we've had no end, really, of, of triumphant cases where we've won and uh, we, we've, we've helped strengthen legal protection for others in doing so. Um, but I think one cannot help but resent that that has to be done in the first place mm. um, and that the West has got to the point where freedom of speech particularly, also religious freedom, I would say as well, um, 
has become so maligned and misunderstood and mischaracterized and it it is part of this broader problem i think in which the west has lost its sense of itself um and one of the ways in which we seem to be coping with this is, is having a, a sort of massive collective nervous breakdown and investing all of our time or the time of activists and large parts of civil society in talking about for instance the campaign to trans rights activists and what they want it, it's interesting ben you you'd mentioned historians looking back in a hundred years i i look at i switch time around and go back to the 90s and look forward when i feel we've been yes. gaslit in that in that uh, that word i didn't i didn't know what it was till a couple of years ago but all every step of the way we've been or gaslighted uh, we've been told don't worry yourselves it's going to be fine the fundamental freedoms are safe and secure in britain in the 90s that was being being said you, you you're just worrying about political correctness gone mad mm. um, you know this is this is not something to worry about freedom of speech is not on the table that's who we are as people and society and so even go, even going back and looking forward everything that was promised was a was was a false promise and actually although no one could have predicted it would have played out in the way that it has um i laugh at people who say oh you you're just worried about uh, political correctness gone mad i said no that was a fight of the 90s that was the fight of the 90s if you come and look at what the free speech union is dealing with every single day the fight is a different kind of fight it has it's turned that's like comparing a sort of medieval battlefield with a, a, a modern modern warfare the weapons have changed and the scale has changed and uh, yeah. to take the language of the 90s and, and apply it to some of what we're seeing today in the 2020s is is just seems to be people have been asleep um it's completely anachronistic isn't it it feels it's anachronistic, and it's yeah. interesting when the conversation happens. We will talk about this later, actually, at, uh, when we get on to talk about the, uh, the the Conservative Party and the NHS. But the heckler, the heckler there saying there's no such thing as gender ideology. I felt that conversation mm. was just complete, complete um, lack of awareness of, of what we mean by uh, gender identity ideology and how extreme it has actually become but we'll come on to that later because we first of all i think need to talk about um the department for education so moving moving from uh, uh the world of talking about talking and not being able to talk about what's really going on to the world of george orwell um uh, so uh, stra strap up everybody <laughs> we, we, we really are going into sort of more dystopian reality so tom you want to talk to us now about the department for education and a conference that's been in the news what was going on so ruth swales and aaron bradbury who are co-authors of a best-selling book on early childhood they were going to be the headline speakers at this conference but before the conference took place the organizers said that the department for education planned to cancel it because they were deemed unsuitable. And uh, obviously, as uh, authors of, of best-selling books on the topic of early childhood and uh, themselves experts in the area, they were a bit nonplussed. Um, and so eventually, the event, but, event went ahead, but only after uh, they, they threatened legal department, uh, legal action. So, uh, legal action on the Department for Education. 
So as usual, it, it required a fair amount of robustness to push back against uh, this strange request that the, the conference be cancelled, and it went ahead. However, after the event, um, the, the two co-authors, so Ruth Swales and Aaron Bradbury, were curious as to why they'd been labelled unsuitable. Um, and so they took one of the, as we call it, one of the tried and tested techniques that we at the FSU have been um, mentioning to our members, which is a subject access request. Uh, it requires the Department for Education to disclose information uh, held on uh, Miss Swales in this case. And the results revealed that the Department for Education had actually been keeping a file on her, including details of critical posts on X or Twitter, as it is, about Ofsted, commentary on the fact that she had liked posts promoting guidance on teaching young children that was written by practitioners rather than the government. So this is really um, strange stuff. But then a bunch of other educationists then in solidarity uh, with Miss Wales went and did the similar thing to themselves. At least nine individuals have now received very lengthy files on their views and their social media activity. And so what this, what this means is that uh, the Department for Education has been monitoring people's um, social media account and putting together files on them. And it, quite understandably, those who are seeing these files are absolutely outraged. But it's not the only department, Ben, to have done this. That's the Department for Education. There was also a um, chemical weapons expert, Dan Cazetta, uh, was disinvited from giving a keynote speech at a Ministry of Defence conference. Again, the organisers vetted his social media channels and identified the social media posts that criticised the government. And uh, so what's, it, it, it is just like George Orwell's Ministry of Truth but that we're seeing. If you say the wrong thing or you, you, you're, you're out there in the public um, square criticising the authorities, criticising the government, uh, then um, you may well get labelled. You may get that black mark against you. And, um, but it goes further than that because actually there were actually uh, 15, or sorry, 16 departments, so the, the MOD plus, plus 15 other departments, 16 total departments that had these um, policies, what they call their due diligence policies for speakers and events that the departments are putting on. So 16 departments had this, and they have now been withdrawn. Thank goodness there is some good news here. Uh, they have now been withdrawn for review. But uh, I don't know whether to be surprised by it, Ben. Um, again, I think I'm surprised by the scale of it. I'm not surprised that it's happening. But to have this infect, this view of, of due diligence policies, again, an innocuous label... Uh, but having real-life implications for, for experts in their field who may be coming to an event organised by the departments, it's, uh, it's, it's very worrying. And Tom, just to clarify, we see frequently, in the case of Anna Thomas, for instance, the Department of Work of Pensions, uh, civil servant, former civil servant that we helped at the Free Speech Union, we do see many cases where the civil service is running biased politically partisan training or where departments are disseminating politically biased material um, and so on. This is a long-running and increasingly well-documented problem. The Telegraph have run various articles about this over the past couple of weeks in different departments, for instance, um, and in the military. 
But this isn't that. This isn't somebody who was coming in to deliver training to civil servants that civil servants might have found objectionable. This was somebody, or two experts in, in the case that was reported in The mm. Guardian, who were coming to go uh, speak at a conference for which they were eminently qualified and suitable. Um, and merely because they had criticised government policy in the past, the DfE disinvited them. That's correct, isn't it? That's right. Um, it's their policy for vetting external speakers at government-run events. That's the policy that, that, that is uh, at the heart of this. And um, cabinet office officials have said they have the right to look at five years' worth of social media postings as part of its vetting policy for those external speakers. So you're right, it's not, it's not employees, it's not civil servants, it's not the outworking of uh, gender ideology or critical race theory within the departments, within, uh, within the civil service. This is uh, the vetting of external speakers, external experts who come in. And you can understand <laughs> there needs to be some vetting I mean, we don't want uh, terrorists coming and talking at events or given a platform. We don't want um, people who are clearly going to say things that are uh, illegal or, or, or going to completely uh, undermine um, something. I mean, that, that, again, that, that's difficult to, to work out in practice. But you, 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 you want to make sure it's a proper expert. I get that who is going to say things that are related to the topic at hand, but not, but maybe controversial. There's nothing wrong with controversy, but it seems that if you criticise the government, if you are an expert and say, I'm not sure the government quite got that right, or I'm not sure quite the government quite got that right, and it's an event organised by the government, there's a, this sense of overreach um, again. And of course, this is all setting a precedent for the Labour government that we are um, not all but guaranteed, but very likely to have after the election. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the the um, it's interesting because and in one of the um, uh, do dossiers, I suppose, is the is the only word for what um, people who who put in their subject access request. It's the word that describes what what they received. Um, there was the, the in in that dossier was some fairly was some fairly puerile backwards and forwards um, between members of the the department. Um, in this case, this was this was again back at the Department for Education. Puerile correspondence between DfE officials, with one email accusing her of having an axe to grind. This is actually a totally different educationalist called Carmel O'Hagan, along with details of who she'd been interacting with online, all neatly packaged up in every Orwellian bureaucrat's favourite piece of software, the Excel spreadsheet. One thing that occurs to me, though, Tom, is that I wonder if because there has been so much. Um, backlash, quite rightly, against the kinds of training I've described and the kind of partisan stuff that's been going on in the civil service. I wonder if this kind of vetting has become a kind of overcompensation. So civil servants have got it into their minds that they've, they've, the ministers are unhappy with this type of training and these kinds of speakers coming into hex civil servants, that kind of thing. Um, and that has been sort of transmuted into any criticism of government mm. is now thought to be problematic. I wonder if that's part of it, where there has been an overcompensation. I don't know. Well, I wonder if criticism of the government as well. You may be right. Um, I, I think a lot of this comes back to the, the sort of COVID-19 um, nudge theory. Uh, thou shalt not criticise the policies 
um, period. Uh, and as we always do, we don't get into the details of the debate, but without a doubt, it became a time when criti criticizing the prevailing narrative openly, uh, particularly as a professional, was noted. At the very least, it was noted by people, by policymakers, and by people in positions of influence. And at worst, uh, it was uh, people were shut down, shadow banned, or, or you know, we talked about what was it the twin, the, the um, Twitter censor, censorship complex, the industrial censorship complex yep. of Twitter at the time. Um, and I, I think the trouble is that, and we talked about income tax before, coming and never going. Governments get into the habit of doing things, and they don't know how to stop doing things. It takes a, a real strong hand on the tiller to say we did that temporarily. And now we're going to stop doing it and give back uh, more autonomy to not just our citizens, but to those organizing events, to our experts, to our esteemed citizens, and trust them to be good at what they are good at. And so long as they're not yet prescribed or, or whatever, let them come, let them talk, let them debate, let them have the conversation, and let them criticize the government. But we seem to have... Not we seem not to be swimming in those waters anymore. I think Ben. So it may well be. It may well be. I think yeah. that's almost too small. The um, the idea that that there's been enough pushback against uh, gender ideology and critical race. We know it because we work mm. in that particular part yeah. of um, what's going on. But I, I'm not sure it's necessarily that well understood more broadly. What is understood more broadly is what came out of the 2020, 21, 22. Um, uh, time of, of you know the way government operated. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I would say, um, Tom, by way of agreeing you agreeing with you that I don't think that is a um, a sort of cranky or conspiratorial thing to say. I think it is the general pattern that crisis, be it pandemic or war or emergency of whatever kind. You saying I'm not a swivel-eyed loon? I am saying that, <laughs> but it, it generally increases. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I may a statement I may have to withdraw. You may regret one day. <laughs> yeah, I think as a general pattern, the, these things do increase the power of the state. And once the state has these powers, it's very difficult to give them up. And I think that's the general pattern you could safely observe from particularly the last 150 years, I would say. You know, I'm getting dangerously close to complaining about the Napoleonic origins of income tax. And how I mentioned still... income tax, and I was worried you would notice I mentioned yeah. income tax yeah, and no, pick up on I've, it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, noted. it's still, still due to be cancelled. I think it's on the to-do list, Ben, still due to be cancelled <laughs> at some point. But Ben, you wanted to talk about um, Professor Eric Kaufman, which is, again, without getting too depressed about the state of uh, free speech, I think this is a very positive move. So do you want to tell us what's, what's happened there? Yeah, it is. So just by way of introduction for anyone who's not heard of him, I suspect most listeners probably will have done and we've seen him commentating on events or, or writing. He, he's written a lot about um, immigration, mass migration, white flight, and authored a book in 2019, uh, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And he comes at all these things, I would say, whether you agree with him or not, from a reasonable, sensible, evidence-based perspective. He's not trying to stir things up. He's not a sort of rabid populist in any way. He's an academic who speaks in very sober, calm, reasonable terms. Um, and I would recommend his, his writing. It's really interesting stuff. Anyway, he's had a long, long-running 
battle he's been facing this campaign for i think the best part of five years um from uh university of london he was the uh, head of politics at, at birkbeck and he has been hounded really for just sort of touching this this third rail or wading into this area of controversy that is obviously so damaging to people's careers if you don't stay very firmly on one side of these questions um and he's he's had a hell of a time we've intervened at various points at the free speech union to assist uh, we instructed a specialist higher education lawyer james murray to write to the university on his behalf and he'd face various complaints and investigations and all the usual stuff that people are now wearily familiar with if you uh, step outside the orthodoxy on this issue as on so many others but the development now which has been reported in the mail and i think is an excellent piece of news is that he is setting up a new center for heterodox social science at buckingham university and the mail has called this a faculty for common sense which i think is as good a description as any um and one hopes and imagines i think that this will be a place where the types of research that should be going on in social science departments, following the truth wherever it leads, will be able to continue. And I just say on a personal note, I think I've probably mentioned the subjects of my, my PhD before, um, recently completed. I, I interviewed ex-Muslims in Britain about their experiences, uh, which, broadly speaking, were not very pleasant experiences at all. And I know firsthand how if you're in a social science department and you want to do something that engages with the live area of controversy something that um that, that can attract hostility uh, certainly ex-muslims attract a huge amount of hostility uh, and looking at them was deemed by various people to be suspect just by interviewing them people were questioning you know do you have some islamophobic motive or you know what what's your real agenda in looking at this and my my real agenda and, in, uh, and purpose was an interest in wanting to know what they had to say but I know firsthand how important this kind of stuff is, that we need social science departments to be engaging with these debates and these subjects. And we need academics to feel able to do that without being quietly moved off, you know, the promotion list or finding it difficult to get the next mm -hmm. pay point on their scale or whatever. And these are the kinds of penalties that people are suffering sometimes without knowing it. The University of Buckingham is a is a light on a hill as well. I, I, I think it's yes. been described by Professor Kaufman uh, as a beachhead for academic freedom and viewpoint diversity. It's the only point of light in an increasingly monocultural higher education ecosystem. And it's, it's much needed. And of course, the question it raises is, University of Buckingham provides this, with, with Professor Eric Kaufman there now, provides this sort of opportunity for, real, for us to rediscover real academic freedom and to practice real academic freedom, particularly in the social sciences. And uh, whether that will engender a new spirit more widely or, or whether actually this is the first instance of us having to rebuild entirely so that the University mm. of Buckingham, rather like church plants, has to then plant another university somewhere else and another university somewhere else, um, which is based on, on free speech um, and academic freedom. Uh, so it's an interesting, 
uh, way of going about revitalizing and finding confidence again in real academic freedom. And we, as you say, Professor Kaufman is more than um, qualified to do that, given his personal lived experience, dare I even say that, um, but also the fact that he's such an esteemed academic who has an important bunch of things he wants to say. So I think on the question of whether you rebuild institutions from scratch and you do a counter long march through the institutions or whether you just set up an entirely new university or whatever it is um i like a twin track approach and mm. it's interesting there's, there's an article in the telegraph today again it's monday morning uh by louisa clarence smith quoting the new free speech sar as he is called that's professor arif ahmed who was at Cambridge, oh, sorry, is at Cambridge still, and is the new Director for Freedom of Speech and Academic Freedom in the Office for Students. So that's a new post that's been created by the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act that the FSU has been campaigning for now for such a long time, which is now uh, now through Parliament. Um, so I think he's he said some quite interesting things that chime with what um, Eric Kaufman has said in his experience, and he's talked about... Um, complaints about things he said and the hesitancy about talking about certain topics. Um, so I think a twin track approach is is the way to go on this. So we, yeah. we are achieving <clears throat> the the institutional fight back, um, which um, Professor Ahmed was in, instrumental in at Cambridge um, and he's now at the Office for Students, which is great, but also at Buckingham in this new centre. Um, I think two fantastic developments. You mentioned twin track approach and you mentioned the third rail. It feels like you, uh, you, you, you're going through a bit of a sort of railway theme today, Ben. I hope it doesn't derail. There, I didn't know there was a third rail. That, that's where the electricity goes, isn't it? It must be all this stuff about HS2 in the news, Tom. I must be uh, subconsciously absorbing all Or you've been thinking about the trolley problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's all gone into my subconscious mind. I, I, I actually read the same article about uh, Arif Ahmed, and it struck me uh, that he, he absolutely um, puts it... I couldn't put it better than the way he puts it in that article. He says it makes no difference whether you're in favour of Brexit or against it. It makes no difference at all what side you take on statues or pronouns or colonialism or abortion or animal rights or ULES. You can castigate the monarchy or defend it. You can argue that Britain is fundamentally racist or that it never was. You can speak or write as a Marxist, a post-colonial theorist, a gender-critical feminist or anything else if you do it within the law. And I have yeah. to say, my, you know, I thought, wow, that's a refreshing thing to hear spoken so publicly. I think he's giving that speech today, Monday, the 9th of October, and it's an extraordinarily powerful point. Um, I feel like he's almost summed up the whole series of podcasts we've had so far, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, his appointment's a great development. Um, now, we want to go on to a, a rather, uh, <laughs> well, an environment where you're rather less free, which is the, um, the NHS and headlines over the weekend about uh, was it 12 months of, of leave for men suffering menopause symptoms? I, 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 I read that and <laughs> despaired. I have to say, it's a, it's a, it's a, one never quite knows what the next headline or the next uh, article is going to be about. But this relates to Steve Barclay's conservative conference speech, pledging to end the use of gender-neutral language on NHS advice pages 
particularly for, you know, for female-only conditions. Again, the use of language in the NHS has just spiralled out of control. Uh, the new words, the new speak uh, is, is rolled out in policies. The expectations apply to employees, but they also apply to patients, and patients are finding they're getting into trouble, and, and even in worst case, um, not getting the treatment uh, that they might need, and all because of this new gender uh, identity ideology embedding itself deeper and deeper and deeper into the NHS. But in the speech in Manchester, uh, um, Steve Barclay has pledged to end the use of this gender-neutral language. Now, I don't know what you feel about that, Ben, but obviously I think great that is we've seen the outworking of that and we've seen that it's got out of control and we've seen that it's confusing people and we, it is a this is an error i mentioned how things are a matter of life and death i mentioned how statistics are a matter of life and death but if you are going for a cancer screen and you read a leaflet that is confusing because it says uh, makes some comment about ovarian cancer or or, or testicular cancer and you don't know whether it applies to you or not because those are words not everyone in our society is going to to know what those words mean and whether they apply to them that becomes a matter of life and death do i go for this screen or do i not go for this screen and so um you know i i think it is really important but will will it happen ben is my is my question we've seen so often big speeches big promises and then still the NHS trusts on the ground are rolling out policies that embed this deeper. We saw just recently the case of South Tyneside and Sunderland rolling out, and we wrote we wrote a letter to them that's available on our website. Um, and in that policy, a trans woman uh, must be referred to as uh, mustn't be referred to as he if uh, that trans woman has requested the use of she. Uh, yeah, refusing to use the pronouns of a colleague, all of that is deemed transphobic and, and will not be tolerated in any form in this policy. There was some a glimmer of hope coming out of that example. We got a letter back, and in that letter, yeah. the Trust will review the policy and consider your comments and suggest amendments uh, when making decisions regarding the content. But in essence, you've still got this dichotomy, this difference between what's happening at the top of government and what's happening on the ground in the NHS trusts. Um, and and I, I, I'm sceptical, Ben, I think. I'm, I'm very sceptical. I mean, honestly, Tom, if I had a pound for every time the FSU had been contacted by a clinician, you know, doctor or a nurse or indeed receptionist or cleaner or whoever at the NHS saying, I'm really concerned about this new policy that's just come through in the last couple of years, the last two or three years, um, I'd be a very wealthy man. Mm. And, you know, you, you do get sick of reading these things because it's the same belligerent, politically partisan rubbish that is just being pumped up by equality committees and groups of staff allies and all the rest of it. So it's great that the government has noticed that this is going on um, and is talking about trying to put a stop to it. The concern I have with anything to do with the NHS, and we talked about this, I think, last week, just in terms of how modern Britain is actually governed, um, the immense power of quangos and agencies and so on to resist diktats or requests or suggestions or instructions from the government. Yeah. 
and it, as we talked about before, so I'll not repeat myself, it does seem that the minister, um, as an abstract figure, is increasingly powerless. So we'll have to wait and see if this translates into action at the level of ordinary members of NHS staff contending with these sorts of policies, threatening them with disciplinary action for misgendering somebody. Um, it, it's, that, it's obviously a complete nonsense. There's a couple of other thoughts I had around this, um, which really uh, came home to me after the speech by Steve Barclay, because a lot of people I know were uh, posting things on social media along the lines, along the lines of uh, trans rights are human rights. And, um, uh, you know, kind of, I stand with, I stand with our trans uh, brethren. And it seems to me that that reaction, while potentially understandable, is, is a function of the fact there's been no open public debate on what this new language should be, how it should play out. Because there's been no debate, everyone is so entrenched on either side of this discussion so that if someone says we need to step back from applying new language, then on the other side, it's listened to the fact that you're trying to debate whether I even am allowed to exist, which is not what is being said, but it is what's being heard. And this 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 fact that we don't have the ears to hear what something what someone like Steve Barclay might be saying is what strikes me, and it worries me. I mean, we, it's interesting. There was a heckler who was removed from uh, the conference, uh, Andrew Bath who said, oh, there's no such thing as gender ideology. Uh, and again, I felt that when I listened to Andrew Boff after that talk about what he meant by that, it sounded to me like exactly what I just said. Anyone who critiques this language in the NHS in some way is saying that um, trans people don't have a right to exist, trans people don't have a right to receive treatment, trans people uh, should have lesser rights than the rest of... Um, the citizenry that is not what i hear and i that's not what's being said it really is not saying that it is saying that we all have rights uh, but we have to work out how those rights are balanced women's rights with trans rights and work out how they work out in practice and to do that we need to be able to talk to do that we need to be able to have the discussion and the shutting down of debate has been this dreadful um dreadful thing over the last five six seven years you cannot debate my existence well that wasn't what the debate was going to be about the debate was going to be about how we balance the rights of different groups in society um and so it really it really struck me there that was an, was with andrew boff was a good example of maybe scratching a bit deeper he was on uh, andrew doyle's free speech nation yesterday i thought it was very interesting that discussion if anyone gets the chance to to listen to that discussion that was two people on two different sides of the debate having a having a debate and you can kind of see whether where their their miscommunication is happening and it's going to take a lot to unpick that uh, but it's got to be discussion the talk has got to happen it's such a rare thing isn't it to get anybody on that side of the, of the 
I was about to say that side of the discussion, but as you said, there isn't actually much of a discussion at all. But to get somebody on the other side to actually attend a debate and subject their ideas to some kind of scrutiny and engage with the other side is a vanishingly rare thing. But the, um, you know, and even when they do that, as you said, there's this talking past each other. And I thought this mm. was very evident, particularly over the last two weeks, with the Home Secretary's speech about multiculturalism. And it's been infuriating watching two sets of people talking past each other and some people who take the term multiculturalism to mean that people of different races and religions can live alongside each other peacefully which I think in many instances modern Britain has demonstrated successfully versus the idea of multiculturalism as groups of, of sort of client communities who have a, a relationship to the state but the state ceases to have a relationship to the members of those communities as individuals. And that model of multiculturalism is one that I think is fraught with problems, as we've seen from the demonstrations over the last few days after the appalling events in Israel. Um, that point's been, been, been brought home again. But this talking past each other is really yeah. frustrating because you can see that, that each side is, is just not really properly engaging with what the other is trying to talk about or trying to say. And, of course, this is particularly vexed with trans issues because... Yeah. Um, you, you have one side of that of that particular issue who just refuse almost universally to engage in any discussion. Um, and when they do, they just see any discussion of the rights of women and girls as being a dog whistle. And they just cannot take that argument in good faith. They think it's it's a it's a diversion or, or a disguise for bigotry. Um, we, and in those with those complicating, confounding factors, it's just very difficult to have a conversation like the one that, that took place in Andrew Doyle's show. It's confounded as well by this idea of allyship, I think. Yeah. The, the idea of allyship, the more I've delved into it and worked out what that means in practice, in essence, it means if you're not, if you're not with me, you're against me. And it's like a big red button on the desk. If someone on one side of the debate thinks that, that the government, someone in power, is saying something they don't like, they hit the big red button, and that is a call for all the allies to emerge and to condemn whatever is being said. So no debate is allowed to take place. What being an ally means in this, in, in this particular situation is it means right now is the time to come and uh, do what we asked you to do. Now is the time for you to come and do what you signed up to do, what you promised to do. Uh, and if you don't do it, you're not really an ally. And so it's a trick, and we've talked about that before, but it's exactly um, what you say. There's talking over each other in the first place because people haven't trained their ears to hear what people are really saying, and they're imposing these other things on them that they're not, they're genuinely not saying a lot of the time. Um, plus, the debate's not allowed to happen, confounded by this idea of allyship, which bypasses any debate anyhow. And so again, the space for debate is, it doesn't exist anymore. And uh, we're, 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 we're pushing back. We're finding ways for it to happen. And there are growing places like Buckingham, uh, where I'm going to look into that course that, that Professor Eric Kaufman uh, is putting out now. I don't know whether anyone from the, um, you know, someone like me or just a member of the public can, can apply for his course, but I, I may, I'm going to look at it. It didn't look bad value just to get 18 weeks worth of uh, how, to, how to think 
in a in a thoughtful and academically free way. So there there is hope. There is hope. I don't want to go too um, negative at this point, well, Ben. In terms of creating spaces for these discussions to take place, the FSU <laughs> is doing more than its fair share through our events program which is absolutely chocker with fantastic stuff coming up. So uh, Tom and I, we're going to hear Nigel Farage speaking about his debanking experience and all the rest of it with uh, Toby Young this evening. That's Monday. So it's too late to give a plug for that event because by the time you're listening to this, that will be in the past, I'm afraid, uh, although we did note it last week. And then we've got a, an appearance from Dr. Alka Segal Cuthbert, who was deplatformed from an education conference that we spoke about. I think that was last week or the week before time. I can't remember now that we spoke about that. Uh, I was in my, my fog of COVID confusion, so I, I can hardly remember anything said in the last two weeks. So I hope I didn't say anything cancelable. Um, you did It was are fine. Good, good, good. <laughs> Uh, but on Monday the 16th of October at 7pm, and all these details are on our website, uh, she's talking about school indoctrination, which was the subject of the talk that she would have given had she not been no platform. So that is going to be really interesting. Uh, and then, bloody hell, Tom, we've got loads to read. We've got here. a There's lot massive. more. We've got, <laughs> so on the 25th of October, we've got, if you're in Edinburgh, there's an FSU Edinburgh speakeasy. Uh, can words really hurt? Then on the uh, 25th of October, again, uh, organised by the Leeds Salon, uh, what's the state of satire? Uh, so that's the same time as the Edinburgh Speakeasy. And then that following weekend, the 28th and the 29th of October in London, uh, there's the Battle of Ideas Festival and uh, there's an FSU session on online censorship and international clampdown question mark. And that uh, event that the FSU session features Toby Young, Constantin Kissin, Silky Carlo, Norman Lewis, and Thomas Farsi. And discount, discount tickets are available. Put a link in the show notes. And then finally, looking ahead a bit, uh, there's the uh, Comedy Benefit, our annual Comedy Benefit that takes place just before Christmas. I'm sorry, we mentioned the C word. <laughs> <laughs> and where are we? October the 9th. I know, I know, oh, I know. It doesn't oh. feel possible, but it, it oh, unfortunately is going to become more and more frequent, I think, in, in various circumstances. So that's Wednesday the 20th of December, so literally on the cusp of, of Christmas. And our MC for the evening is FSU favourite Dominic, Dominic Frisbee. And he will be joined on stage by uh, a lineup that includes Francis Foster, Daniel O'Reilly, Tanya Edwards and Alistair Williams. And again, tickets are available on our website. So there's a, there's a cornucopia, I think, is, it wouldn't, mm. be a, wouldn't be an un, unfair word to describe that, uh, of events coming up if you're a member of the FSU. So sign up, become a member, and uh, get access to this fantastic uh, series of spaces in which we debate and push back and, and get a, po you know, a more positive uh, view of the world than some of what we, 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 we surround ourselves with uh, when we, we're isolated. You're not isolated. We can, we can meet and we can talk and we can have the debates that aren't happening elsewhere. But I, Ben, is there anything else you wanted to add? Well, just to say, as a, as a sort of general plug, our events really are fantastic fun. We have great speakers, great panel discussion, whatever the, the particular event is. But then afterwards, speaking to audience people who come along you know it's people from all walks of life 
who are united in their concern about the state of free speech in Britain and want things to change. And they're really fantastic gatherings, even just just for that bit, even without the main event. They're great fun. Um, so do come and say hello if you're if you're there. And um, and we speak yeah. to listeners all the time, actually, don't we, these events, Tom? It's really good, really good. Always um, good having a glass of wine with our members. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, it's really nice. Well, hopefully we'll see you soon. And I think probably that's all from us, Tom, isn't it? So I shall say goodbye. Thank you for listening and uh, have a good week.